Hello everybody, welcome to today's podcast. Now we have two amazing guests today. This one's really exciting. We have Lane Savoir and Dr. Rob Neal to talk about something special that they've created that will help your wedge game. They've created Wedgecraft, which is basically the art and science of wedge play. Now, Lane is, is a PGA coach, NCAA coach, who's been mentored by some of the best teachers in the game, including Chuck Cook, David Ledbetter, Mac O'Grady, and Mark Blackburn, and has regularly worked with several tour players throughout the years. Dr. Rob Neal is world-renowned for biomechanics. Now, we first met Rob in 2012 when we actually had our trip around the world, me and Pierce, just before we started Me and My Golf. We met Rob uh, in Miami, actually. And Rob's worked with many of the best players and coaches in the game and has just so much knowledge and is way, way smarter than me and Pierce. And he's developed his own 3D motion analysis system and is now starting to use his years of experience and knowledge to understand the short game skills. We really do have two incredible, qualified, more importantly, experienced guests today to talk about how you can improve your wedge play. So sit back, take notes, and enjoy as we dive deep into Wedgecraft. So Rob, Lane, thanks so much for joining us both. And let's just quickly go into Wedgecraft. The whole inspiration behind it, obviously you two have got amazing minds. What led you to develop Wedgecraft and what was actually involved in it? Because it wasn't something you just dreamed up overnight. It, it took a few years to get to, to get developed and then filmed, didn't it? So maybe Rob, if you go into it first of all. Yeah, so uh, back in, I think around 2014, I was still at Doral at the time. I remember that. Maybe it was 13. Uh, Lane contacted me, and I'd met Lane through college golf. He was a college golf professional at that time, and uh, I'd worked with the Denmark national team, and so that's how we met. So probably three years earlier we'd met. And L Lane invited me to do some uh, putting research with him, and I turned him down. But I said, if you're interested in um, doing something in short game, I'd be all over that with you. And because I'd started to do some wedge work myself at that time and had started to write some software that would enable me to um, really uh, tease out some of the interesting aspects of wedge play. And so that was the really the um, inspiration, the, the initial contact. And then Lane and I um, worked out a a process or a plan to really understand short game. And it's, it might sound simple when we just summarize it in, in 30 seconds, but it was, let's see if we can get a hold of the best wedge players in the world, measure them on 3D launch monitors and video, and find out the things that they have in common when they hit these different wedge and, and Lane can elaborate here on the different conditions and you know, why we chose particular uh, shots and so forth. But we, what we wanted to do was um, provide the evidence or collect the evidence that would become the foundations of what we would then ascribe or describe as the fundamentals necessary for a wedge play. Lane, it adds, add some stuff there for us too. Yeah, well, first off, thank you, Andy and Piers. I've been looking forward to this. Um, well said, Rob. I, going back almost 10 years, um, I, I was just keen to do something that I felt like was significant. And I felt like Rob would be a great partner in that with his background. And uh, we have very different 
I guess, paths. And so we, we made a connection and uh, a, a quick partnership that um, has proven to, I think, find a lot of things out. And I, I was a little frustrated. I think he was spot on there. I was a little frustrated. I didn't feel like there was anything to really sink your teeth into substantive in short game 10 years ago. And, and so comparatively, we had all this stuff available for the full swing, but there was really no guidance for, for what the best players have in common and what some major teaching principles are, maybe rules of the road, like a roadmap we can use as players and coaches for short game. And so we then said, you know, well, where do you begin? Because people use a wedge vastly different up and down the practice tee in the short game areas when you observe the tour. And so by default, uh, the, the easiest place to kind of wrap our arms around it was, you know, using the shot link architecture uh, of statistics inside 10, inside 20, inside 30, where it became categories. And then there's only three uh, mediums you can hit from fairway, rough and bunker. And so they, those became subcategories. And then we had a square face condition and open face condition. And so all of a sudden we started to put together this, this process that we could do testing and it became dependable and objective, which is important because we're capturing some high quality data, especially when we had say major champions in front of us, we wanted to have a consistent process. So we needed a framework. We felt like we established that we, we captured a 50-yard distance, 75 and 100 in the early days. And so we hit five balls from each uh, of those categories with the players using the high-speed track man initially we got started with, and then Rob's 3D system. And uh, we really started to develop some, some nice data to start studying. And we like anything, I think, when you do that type of endeavor, you have to synchronize the machines and all the information and then you have to develop knowledge about it. And that that really took a while. Like it, it, you go from data to knowledge, um, information to knowledge, and then wisdom in the end. And I, I think we're getting closer to the end result. But it's, mm. it's taken a while for us to really fundamentally understand what's going on, whether it be the ball, the club, or the body, that, that full system integration is what we're looking for. And I think we've delivered on. And we have a, a beautiful group of players we've been able to work with over the last 10 years. So just quickly on that, who, who are those players then that you've worked with mainly? We've, we've worked with what we'll call the Grand Slam. We worked with multiple U.S. Open winners like Justin Rose, and we've captured Tom Kite and Graham McDowell. So those are, are three U.S. Open winners. Nice. Uh, we've worked with some PGA winners. Um, we've worked with Masters champion Mike Weird, Jason Duffner, uh, Tom, David Toms on the PGA side. We recently uh, captured a British Open winner, which I don't want to divulge you that be at the time, but we also have two gold medal champions. We've, we've captured Xander Shopley's information along with Justin Rose, and we, uh, we've got a couple world number ones uh, with Justin Rose and Luke Donald as well. So uh, the quality of our information, I, I think, is there, and and I think it's comprehensive. Yeah, it's 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 very impressive, and obviously, you know, we, I've, me and Andy have been through the the initial phase that you did, the ten the ten lessons effectively that you did, and all about the control variables. But one of the key things that you talk about, and this is really important for the listeners to understand, is 
the different style of wedge shots that you can hit. And maybe the two sort of main ones that you talk about being the finesse and the distance wedges. So the names kind of, they're quite self-explanatory, but how do you guys define the finesse and the distance wedges? Rob, why don't you uh, jump in there? So so typically we'd say it's dictated by distance that you're going to hit the shot. And so... Um, I would say that under 40 yard carry would be the finesse wedge zone. And then anything outside 50, maybe 60 yards is in the distance wedge zone. And then you have this very gray area in the middle between mm -hmm. 40 and 60. That's the, probably the, the most difficult place to leave yourself if you're hitting a shot to a, a, a you know, a tight pin or a difficult, um, green complex because it's one of those things where you're you 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 can't get all the benefits that you would you would derive by hitting a distance wedge shot to that location but at the same time you can't use the techniques that you might use for a finesse wedge i mean you just can't hit an open face 50 yard wedge shot like you it's just you can't swing fast enough to, to hit that shot and then it wouldn't be reliable even if you could so you know, to get the launch up and and take advantage of of land angle would be really difficult in that zone. So, um, the short shots around the green, so typically thirty yard shots and in, where you can play a whole variety of different types of shots, like a little chip and run, or a, you know, a, all, all the way out to a flop shot, um, bunker shots of different length. These all form part of the finesse wedge zone. And the distance wedges actually, in reality, are the easier um, conditions because they're much more like a full swing. So anything mm. that you do well in your distance wedges would be great for your uh, full swing. It's really interesting you say that as well because I think a lot of golfers listening to this will have that that grey zone. We call it the dead zone maybe, where it's like, what do I just do from here? And we had a couple of stories we filmed once with DJ and we got these green, these flags set up. He had a 50 yard or a 70 yard one. We said to him, we started the video. What do you do DJ when you got a 50 yard shot? And he's like, I never have one. It's like, he never actually gets him, leaves that shot. And he wasn't that good at playing it. We made him play it. So he wasn't that good. Then he went to 70 yards and he was like literally lipping out. He was that good. And then there was the Dave Pelt story when uh, Paul Azinger went to see him and, he said to him, he says, what do you do if you've got it? After he's watched him duff a few 40-yard wedges, he says, what do you do if you've got a 40-yard wedge? He says, oh, I'll sack the caddy. Again, they just avoid that shot. Now, if you've got major champions avoiding that shot, then the average golfer listening to this, yeah. they, they definitely want to be taking that into account in some strategy. But if they've got good information that can help them with those shots, then it's going to be helpful, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah, think, I mean, go ahead. Sorry. No, go on, Rob. You go. I was just going to say that you know we've had some nice discussions with players and coaches, and the the kind of rule of thumb, just filling in on on um, Piers's his last comment, is that if you can't get to inside thirty yards, then make sure you leave yourself a distance wedge shot because thirty yards you you have access to all of the shots that you can hit um, with the finesse wedge techniques. Um, but if you leave yourself in this no man's zone, it's 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 hit and miss. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally for some people. Um, <laughs> let's get into some of these finesse wedges. And I, as you were going through this, I was I, I was like thinking of loads of questions um, about all the, the data you collated. And I think the finesse wedges are often hard for people to be able to switch from, let's say, the, you know, the power technique to more of this touch and feel and this softness around the greens. Um, you mentioned, again, laying the commonalities. You know, you really wanted to find out what the best players in the world were doing. What did you discover? I mean, and you've got obviously different things, body, club and ball. What did you discover um, within these best players and how different are these commonalities to what the average golfer who are listening to, to this and what could they learn from these commonalities? I, I think that uh, there's a few takeaways. There's a few rules of the road um, that I would try to encourage people to think about is that what we see, like Doc said, if you get in a fairway wedge, it's a direct translation in your full swing. So most of these guys that we test with say a six iron, because we do capture their full swing data as well, they're leading the shaft in the ballpark of about 12 degrees. And just to use that as a number, that's a pretty common number that we see all the way through the bag, all the way down to the smallest of shots. And so the messaging is, yes, you need shaft lean, and you're doing that because the body and the way that it works, we think it, it's most familiar with that position at impact, okay? And so if we know what loft we're going to deliver, then we can start to there create feel from it, okay? So I think you have to find, instead of searching and trying all these things, you have to realize the ball has to start coming off the face correctly, and then that is usually established with a shallow shaft lean combination, right? And so everything from the fairway would need to be shallow. It's not a good model to have a steep uh, fairway approach. And so if you watch as, you know, just walk the tour events, there's they're just scratching the ground. There, there's hardly a mark inside 30 yards. There, there are instances where you see something different occur on television, but it could be driven by the circumstances or maybe the preference of the player or perhaps the wrong club delivery, the wrong, right? For the most shallowness, you see a theme of shaft lean. And then the last thing is, so that's the environment you're creating from the fairway to guide you. If you need loft, you change clubs or you open that club face, but you still try to make the same fundamental movement. And then in terms of the, the club kinematics, the relationship of the, the hand path to the sweet spot and the, that blur, you want to focus on hitting little baby cuts. I think that is a is a really wise piece to, to try to take away and apply through the bag inside 30 yards. We don't test a lot of people that are in the draw side of the spectrum. In fact, the people that end up in the draw spot side of the spectrum come to us asking for help. And so the best players who have a command of their game and really can deliver the, the, you know, that granular precision, they all have a lot of shaft lean, very shallow and in a cut uh, bias as, as they move through the bag inside 30 yards. Th those are some foundational pieces, I think. But Rob, would you like to add anything? And in, in that's, that's describing the club environment. We haven't even talked about the body, but Rob, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah the, those are, are critical because um, 
in in terms of how far the ball travels, loft is the most important uh, variable. So the dynamic loft. Second is club speed. So if you don't have command of shaft lean, and that doesn't mean, oh, I have to deliver the same shaft lean every time. You, it means you need to be able to, on certain shots, deliver maybe it's as little as six degrees of shaft lean, on other shots, 15. So it's about knowing how much loft you deliver because then you can match the speed to the delivered loft to get the appropriate distance that you'll hit the shot. So the, the three things that uh, Lane keyed on there in terms of club delivery are, are critical there. So in terms of what the body does, then if we get into the finesse wedge zone, you need to step back and say, this is a completely different golf shot that requires different setup fundamentals and then different principles about how we might move our body. And I, I think those are the key takeaways. You don't set up for a finesse wedge the same way as you do for a, an eight iron or nine iron even. Um, and then what you do in swing is critical also. So as you're going through this and, and you sort of mentioned about playing baby cuts, would you say this is um, a lot of the best players are, 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 are going to be more slightly open-faced bias and, and aiming more left? And would you say that a lot of them are slightly open-faced to, to expose the bounce a little more as well? Is that, is that all a combination that goes into the mix? All, all of the above. I think it just, you know, the, 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 um, the closer we get to the hole, the more precise we have to be in golf. And so eventually there, there comes a time where you got to, you got to say, well, what is the most consistent motion I can make given the circumstances? So when the, when a, the, the sharpest edge club that has the most weight to it, that's moving slowly and you have those blend of events, you have to create an arc that has some dependability and can slide. And even if you have some error, there's some forgiveness. And I think that blend of, of elements you've described, that like using some shaft lean, baby cut to the left and shallow, that is um, a, a key signature for getting the ball to come off with the intention. And, and using the toe of the club is a big part of that. Um, you can set up a lot more towards the toe than people realize, and you can contact the ball on the toe a lot more pe than people realize. And so there's a lot of, as Rob mentioned, I think some misconceptions about, you know, what translates from the full swing down to the short game. You have to compartmentalize those things and realize that um, the best players in the world are able to deliver some really nice fairy wedge, uh, fairy wedge technique, but on the other side of the coin, use the same club, the next shot, and perhaps use completely different motion patterns and, and principles to hit a flop shot. So yeah. um, I think that's a hard one, even for good players to understand sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think as we, as I'm going through this as well, I, I keep thinking about the golfers that that we see day in, day out. And I think about some of the things that my, myself and Pierce just consistently see, and I'm sure you guys see all the time as well. There's, so, there's certain things within the average golfer 
that there's certain patterns that they see. And I just want to maybe share a couple of things that we see. And then I'd love you to comment on it as well in terms of the data to, to see if there's anything matching there. So a couple of things that we always see is that short length backswings and a lot of amateur golfers and a lot of acceleration. So short length with a lot of acceleration. Um, I think, um, and Andy, just uh, to be a little more specific there, yes, we see short length for sure, probably um, more hinge than and therefore steeper than, than uh, better players. But when we talk about acceleration, I'd say it's a lot more of the lever system that gets accelerated than the body. And so that they rely very much on their arms generating the energy necessary to hit the shot. And, and therefore, that's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. And that does, is that, does that lead to exposing the bounce? Sorry, exposing the leading edge a little bit more from your experience when they are driving these levers? Um, I, I would I would say that the you, you increase the probability because usually a quick change of direction. I mean, there's it's kind of a loaded question. There's a lot of things that can move a club forward, but usually when there's an abrupt change of direction, the handle is going to really accelerate, and the club head's going to be behind it. And so you 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 get to the point where especially in the later stages of the release that maybe they have too much shaft lean and there's certainly too much lead edge looking at the ground. And of course the angle is not going to be consistent. It could be shallow one time, but it could be, you know, steep the next because of the over acceleration and the steering in the arms. And so to your point, we, we like to use the word like coasting. You want to feel like you get to the end of the backswing which is very rotary, as, as Rob mentioned in the body, the trunk is very rotated. It's unbelievably rotated on even 15 yard pitch shots. You can't believe the numbers we see in the, in the trunk. Um, their hands are pretty quiet. And from there, it's just like the arms are along for the ride and you just swivel into the ball as you're, as you're rotating your body and the, there, there's no consequence at the bottom. You just go all the way to the other side and it's this super shallow, um, kind of extending strike that allows space and width to occur. And that that's how I would describe it. But there's, we don't like to see a lot of acceleration. Usually that is actually the, the, in the software, that's what a, a yip looks like is the over acceleration of the arms and hands. So it's better for the listeners to this, to be thinking about really how they create the speed with the pivot motion in the golf swing, as opposed to any driving forces of the arms and club really. That's yeah. right. I mean, that's that's really really a good summary. And to Lane's point about turning in in the these little shots, most amateur golfers with whom I've worked, even relatively high skill level players, don't turn their body enough, both on the backswing and the through swing, and rely too much on the arms to generate energy uh, in the club head. So it, it's like a re-education for, for most of these amateur players about the relationship between arms and body and how to um, change the, the speed or the distance that you want to hit the shot by changing your pivot motion rather than just adding speed with your arms. Yeah. 
That's interesting. It's interesting data, and I, yeah, I can. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of all the lessons that I've taught coming back <laughs> to me now, and how many people. But yeah, it's certainly interesting, and that's definitely going to be helpful for listeners to this if you can think about maybe using that that body a little bit more in those shorter shots. Yeah. And and maybe uh, this would be a good point to um, jump in and say, look, there there are a couple of um, to use Jim McLean's words, death moves for. Um, uh, finesse wedge play, for example, moving away from the target on the backswing is like that's one of your killer moves. Lifting up on the backswing is another, you know, just something you need to avoid doing. Going down is fine. Going down and towards the target, better. And then something that probably people are starting to realize now is that in the downswing, you need to start getting the handle up to shallow the club delivery. And then there are certain mechanisms for body motion that need to do that. So if you go left towards the target, let's say, um, I won't exclude the, the left-handed players here. If you go towards the target on your backswing and down, then you'll need to do things on your downswing to get the handle to raise. And that'll be the sorts of things that uh, Lane teaches every day to these people about how to extend the body and, and, and get that handle up. Yeah. And we see it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, to, we've been very fortunate because we've we obviously filmed with a lot of these great players over the years. And whenever there's any chance of getting any slow-mos of them, we're always doing it so we can study it and, I think we we actually had um, it was an off chance. We we weren't actually meant to be filming with John Rahm. We we normally film with John Rahm. He was only at TaylorMade photo shoot when he was with TaylorMade for one day, and he actually requested that we actually did some filming with him because he saw that we, we had a break and he had a break. And he was like, "Come on over." I said, "Great, okay." We'd done plenty of stuff with him before, and it was probably the most impressive thing I've ever seen. He just basically called us over so we, we could watch him. He could show off for half an hour. That's kind of what he was doing. <laughs> but he was just phenomenal. We were saying, we were getting really nasty with the positions we were putting the ball in and he was still knocking them inside a, a club length. But the one thing that's very notable with John is that he he actually stands up considerably on his through swing, on his down swing and his through swing. You can see that head raise must be three maybe even four inches. I don't know whether it actually is that much, but it, it feels like it's that much, or sorry, it looks like it's that much on the camera. So it is, it's a, you know, it was, um, I think that might've even been the first point. That was probably about four years ago, five years ago that I'm actually going, yeah, maybe this is something that, you know, you're starting to see a little bit more. Ernie L's doing the same sort of thing. Ernie L's is very much fixed down with his eyes, but his head actually comes up as well and moves and, and moves back behind him a little bit. But, yeah, I think I think it's 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 crucial. I think if anyone's listening to this now and thinking, well, actually, if I can on the backswing, you know, maybe move a bit toward the target. Maybe if I go down, it's okay. But then on the through swing, I can actually feel as I'm almost standing up a little bit. Then that would be a good thing. Yeah, those it's are good observations. Great, great observations. Uh, they're they're spot on. There's 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 the up, and then there's the away. And then there's the forward, and that would kind of be the three dimensions that the body has to move. So I know that people listening can't see it, but you got to take a backswing that goes towards the target, and you're basically in posture or down slightly. And then you go into extension 
And Standing. from from down the line, you're thrusting away and you're moving up while you're twisting. So it's like you're twisting up into the ball, and that's a that's a that's the way to shallow the club. I think, unfortunately, we've been um, told that we shallow the club with the levers, but I'm not a fan of that approach. I think you shallow mm -hmm. the the magic is that the, the when the body moves correctly, the arms and hands. Um, can do really what they need to do. And you, you put the precision into that, um, that maneuver and you'll get unbelievable results at the bottom. Yeah. So what you're saying is they're shallow a bit more with the body as opposed to the wrists effectively. Correct. Correct. Yeah. That, that would be a strong message of, of how to really learn how to get the club out of the ground and, and not get that kind of that chaos where the lead edge sticks and you go, well, what, what's going on here? You got to be able to learn extension and the extension happens with the knees and the waist and the upper torso. There's a lot of things that can extend while rotating. And so once you start to kind of, I think you have to learn it almost in a mirror, to be honest with you. I think you got to go real slow and wrap your mind around like how different it is really from what we know needs to happen in the full swing. But here's the thing. What any what someone should do now is after after listening to this is video themselves front on and down the line in slow motion and just have a look and just see what yeah. actually is happening. Yeah, it, Sorry, it would have a profound effect on the strike. Isn't it crazy though how over the years and you know golfers are, are so fixated on trying to stay down, but if they have that approach in short game, it's only going to make them worse. So. Oh. Getting golfers to getting golfers to change their whole perception around what actually happens first of all, and standing up is a good thing. You know, it's it's, it's amazing just the the differences and 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 what we think how that impacts things really. The conception, you know, our concepts that we have in our minds influence so much about what we do as well, don't they? That's yeah, right. I mean, I think you know, to that point, Andy. Um, I. I was never given good information when I, I was um, learning how to play golf. And yeah. so, somehow, you know, I, I became a, a good amateur player um, and, you know, managed the short game stuff. And, and then when I was at Doral playing off this really nasty tee deck that they would have in the wintertime that was full of sand and not much grass, I developed pretty close to the yips with those little finesse wedge shots. And it, I, I put it down to the fact that my technique was very poor. And, you know, the information and insights that Lane really brought to the table about how to move my body differently changed that landscape completely for me. And so if you'd have asked me, I don't know, eight years ago to demonstrate a, a finesse wedge shot in front of a clinic grip, I would have declined. But now it's not a problem. <laughs> you, you, you develop the necessary skill and the right mechanics. It's actually pretty easy. But just don't ask me to hit a 300-yard drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Love it. Love it. I've been there myself, Rob. I've been there myself. And, uh, yeah, it's not nice when you, you don't know what's going to yeah. happen when you're hitting a chip shot. Just a quick one here. I know that we've obviously mentioned about, you know, we spoke about the club. And I think, Andy, should we go into the club a little bit? Should we, should we go into the discussion on the bounce a little bit and the, and the wedges that they may use? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think a lot of golfers still don't really understand how to get the most out of the wedges uh, and understanding really what they can do in order to to allow the bounce to work and, and, and move through the turf. It'd be great to 
understand or share some insights of of what they can do to really use that bounce and um and just give them the best chance possible for consistency i think that's when it comes to chip shots most golfers just want something that's a little bit more consistent they can hit one good chip shot the next one can be terrible and obviously how the club interacts with the turf is a key component with that of that as well i suppose yeah i'll i'll start off on this rob um i you know rob and i are somewhat uh, reserved usually when it comes to specific grinds matching with certain players and, and motions. I think there's so many variables that go into it. I, 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 tell, I tell people it's like telling people what kind of shoes they need to wear, right? So there, there's a lot that goes into that, but I, I think you want to understand how best to use the club. And so for depending on the, the skill level or knowledge here, I would say it's crucial if when you have a selection of wedges in your hand, just go to a flat surface and put the lead edge down with the shaft vertical and then start pivoting the, act, the barrel of the shaft and start opening the lead edge and visually watch and observe how much the lead edge rises when you do go into an open club face position. Go from one's extreme on the numbers, go from a four bounce to a 12 bounce and visually begin to understand what opening the lead edge does in terms of where this ball has a chance of hitting this flat surface, because really that's what we're trying to do. So that being said, um, they'll start to realize like, wow, there is a lot of lead edge rise here, and I've got to monitor that. I have to govern that. I have to think about that. What kind of golf course am I playing? Is it firm and fast? Is it tight or is it kind of lush and grassy? Most of us in the world of golf are probably playing the latter, lush and grassy, where we have a little cush and the high bounce stuff is not going to kill you. Um, but for the tour players, because they're playing on like a wooden deck, right? It, it gets glassy and firm and baked out. and It sounds like wood when a golf ball hits it they're going to have to do something different. And uh, what helps everybody universally use the bounce would be an open face condition, kind of coming back to that we mentioned earlier. And that's an important thing. I, I think people are so afraid sometimes to actually aim the grooves a little bit right of the target. But once they let go of that, they'll realize that the club actually moves on the ground a little bit more consistent. It doesn't stick in, into the grain, Bermuda, wet as much. It tends to want to slide. That is an all in the field, thumbs down. Okay, so that's out of um, a little different playbook. But if people really get diggy, the worst thing you want to do is have heel interaction. That's when you really get in the weeds, when you have a low handle at address. That's one of the kisses of death, I think, for the, the, the club golfer is a lot of wrist set low handle, too much forward bend in the waist. That is a starting position that the angles are so difficult to mitigate, right? It's so hard to create shallow when you have a lot of angles that you have to get rid of, essentially. They're not good at that. And so that's when you get heel interaction and the, the lead edge hits and you get a, a myriad of issues. So we, we kind of encourage everyone you want to access the bounce, I would go into a taller setup, probably get a little closer to the golf ball, minimize the angle. We, we say it's getting the chain as long as you can get it. 
Your arms are connected to your body. You're nice and long. The, the club shaft feels like it's almost in line with the, the arms. And then you start to develop motions from there that are pivot driven. And that will complement the shallowness. So you've got the bounce looking at the ground because your thumb's down more. And then the pivot turning, of course, helps shallow that. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do by just low, uh, by increasing the height in those ha in the handle and the the hands that set up. You know, suddenly the body then goes. Oh, okay, maybe it's. I'm more encouraged to work now, and the wrists are taken out of it. Yeah, go on, Andy. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say it's just it's just as amazing how different, isn't it? That that we need to treat this part of the game compared to the long game. It's, it's just it's just totally different how we want the club to work, the body to move. So we've got to have these different elements mm. that we can add in and. Um, I think a lot of golfers, just you know, weekend golfers who are practicing once, twice a week or playing once, once a week, they're probably not going into too much depth and too too different away from their long game. But it's it's a, it's a great idea to explore these and even from what you said there, Lane, just going out and experimenting with different face angles and opening the face and just try it. I don't think I've seen many golfers who've got good short games who've had a shut face like they they tend to swing it from inside out leading edges there it's just so difficult so you know just have a play around i suppose with that face and standing really tall and just see what it produces yeah well, a great way to to kind of open that up is just go as close to the hole as you can get if it's on the chipping green and nobody's looking go for it but get in that tall posture go really low speed where you've got the lead edge just slightly above the green fan open and start to be able to move the club on a dependable arc and get the click you're looking for and the ball popping up and a little bit of check check. And I mean, you should be able to get that dependable delivery from 10 feet, 15, 20 feet, like you're putting. And if you can't, you're probably moving the wrong way. So get even closer to the hole and then really just work your way back with the mindset that we're going to simplify this equation the best we can. And it, it, it continually blows my mind when I do interview people uh, before we do testing. Rob will attest to this as well, at how much of the difficulty and the struggle in wedge play occurs inside 15 yards with perfect lies. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of frustration. So Let's not assume that a, a, a small chip shot is an easy chip shot. It, it's a real battle if the expectations are to pitch it close to the hole and tap it in or make it, right? Um, to, these guys are getting worn out by having to make six and seven footers. And, mm -hmm. and um, there's a, so much precision that needs to go into that, similarly to making all these fast, curving, eight-foot pots. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You have to have a, a system to do it repeatedly yeah. for sure for sure we could talk on this all day and i i do want to talk about bunkers but i want to i would ask one more question because if i don't ask this i'm going to get lynched by the listeners backspin i want loads how do i get it <laughs> stopping power how do we get it um i suppose just from your point of view how you term it how you know from the science or in maybe even leading into the technique a little bit but we can talk about it all day, but yeah, go on. Give us give us what you've got, guys. The the, uh, the cliff notes for this one. Uh, <laughs> you you need to deliver, and, and it's most important at the at the um, distance wedges, the the backspin 
element. It's not as important in the finesse wedge zone, though backspin is important. It's not your primary stopping power ingredient. But in distance wedges, you need to get a spin loft of the order of 55 degrees. So spin loft is the difference between the dynamic loft and the attack. So if you're 10 degrees down and you deliver uh, 45 degrees of loft, then you've got that magical 55 degrees of spin loft. Right? If you go and deliver too much loft, which is, I would say, typical of the amateur golfers, they don't lean the shaft enough. They're, they're throwing their 60-degree wedge at the at the ball and they deliver five degrees of shaft length with a relatively steep attack angle. Then they're going to be way over that magical 55 kind of number. And it's not like absolutely 55. But, um, mm -hmm. So if you deliver too much loft, the ball slips on the face, there's not enough pressure on there to grip it and create friction that will cause the spin. And, and the corollary to that is if you deliver too little loft, you won't get enough friction to create really high spinning shots. You'll create friction, but it mm -hmm. won't be super high spin. So it's, it's a, a fine line about how much loft you deliver and then how steep you are. But, but the other factors that come into this um, are the equipment factors. So if you go down to the range and even with good range balls, you will never get a high spinning wedge shot. They're not designed to perform that way. So it's a combination of your technique to deliver the club a certain way, coupled with a premium golf ball. Now, um, I, it looks like um, Andy's with TaylorMade, so that would be the TP5 ball, right? Uh, for Lane and I who mostly deal with Titleist, that's the Pro V1 or Pro V1X. So that quality of ball, I mean, the other manufacturers have premium golf balls as well, but you also need to have fresh wedges. So the, the engineering that's gone into designing the wedge, the groove spacing, the milling on the face, and how the grooves are, are created um, contributes to you being able to create high spin wedge shots. And so it just doesn't happen um, by magic. You need to get the right ingredients in there. And the good thing about it is that most people can generate enough speed where that's not going to be the constraint on them producing high spin. So obviously the more speed you can generate, the higher potential for spin. But for like a 75-yard wedge shot, which is you know right in that maximum spinning uh, zone, you need probably, I don't know, maybe it's 60 to 65 miles an hour of club head speed. So yeah. it's, it's not beyond the realm of most amateur golfers. Yeah, for sure. So obviously you mentioned that 55-degree spin loft ideal. What, what, are, what are the commonalities that you see in technique to be able to achieve that with the best players. So, so obviously for the listeners to this now, they go, okay, well, I'm going to the driving range. I actually go to the driving range. That's a great way to get friction. But if they go to the practice area and they're not hitting off a mat or they're playing golf, what are the things that they, what are the commonalities in their technique that they could perhaps look at for that? 
So, so the first thing is they need to be able to consistently lean the shaft forward. And if they, mm -hmm. it depends on how much they can lean the forward, the, the shaft forward, how much loft they should use. So tour players are very good. So they can take a 60 or a 61 degree wedge, lean it forward enough that they can create that right environment to produce spin. And, and they don't probably even think about it. They just do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if you're a, you know, a, a weekend golfer and you may be, delivering seven degrees of shaft lean is a pretty good effort for you, then you shouldn't be using a 60-degree wedge because you'll never create the right environment to spin the ball. You'd be way better off trying to get into that spin loft zone again by an appropriate selection of loft on your uh, wedge. Yeah. And, and okay. then, so shaft lean first. Then go ahead, Lane. Yeah. That's probably... That's a great suggestion is to just loft down. Another one is just to stay in a draw bias. That's another easy, easy way to de-loft and get the, the, the spin loft correct and produce some consistency because it depending on most of the time grip types or whatever these people are struggling with. If you just put them in a draw bias on the fairway wedges, they're going to, probably be a lot closer to that maximum spin zone along with sometimes using the 56. We just had uh, Aaron Rice staying with us for a week in between the um, the farmers and the obviously waste management this week. And that was what we were working at with his wedges. We were working at hitting less loft and hitting small draws, less loft and small draws just to hit, just to, to reach that window. He was, he was just launching it a little bit too high, not getting enough spin on it. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. But just quickly on this then, sorry, just to, for the for the listeners to this as well, um, it's very difficult for them to know sort of shaft lean, but would be a good indication mm. for them um, if they're somebody who tends to hit sort of, let's say, scoopy high wedges, then for them really having a 60 degree is just going to potentially kill their spin because, um, because they've just got too much loft on there that it's just, it's a good indication for them that they're just presenting too much loft at the start. And somebody's who hits a little bit more of a, a lower wedge, they could probably afford to go up to a 60 because they're creating a shackling at impact. So they can potentially just go on the judge their ball flight based on the club selection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, in in the field stuff, like if they did take video from face on, you, know, you can get some indication of shackling at impact if they took a high speed video. Um, but I think they're they're easiest thing for them to um, understand is a, a well-flighted wedge doesn't pop up in the air. It goes out at typically under 30 and maybe even 24 to 28 degrees. Not that they'll, they'll have um, mm -hmm. launch monitors to, to monitor it, but it's a low starting position. When they hit when they hit it for the first time, it'll feel like they've thinned it, and they'll look up and they go, "Oh, actually, it's not too bad for this." Oh, it stopped really quickly. <laughs> it's, it's one of those. I it. Oh no! Oh, oh no! It's all right. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a big disconnect, I think, on what a good look in fairway wedge trajectory is for for the weekend golfer. I think they'd be stunned if they hung out on the practice tee and watched some folks warm up before they went and played on the tour. Yeah, hundred percent. I think they'd expect these tour players with a 60 degree to be hitting it up up there and landing it next to the hole. But when you're next to them, 
they're hitting a 60 degree and it's just coming out. It's literally coming out like this, isn't it? So I think it's a good, yeah, it definitely would change the perception on things if they, uh, if they saw them hitting those shots. You want to feel like you can hit it under a street lamp. <laughs> if you can't, it's probably a little too high. So just use, I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it gives you context. You got to hit it solid and you got to really be able to flight it down and you'll get a lot of performance if you can do that. And like you say, doing that softer shot, less loft, draw bias, then you know that's good. I like it. I like it. Just one, guys. I know we are. We are just one quick here, one. In terms of strike yeah. location, guys, where, where do you see that generally it's going to maybe vary depend depending on the manufacturer? But where's the sweet spot on these wedges? Where should they be looking on the face on the grooves to be to be to be looking to strike it? I'll let Rob handle that one. <laughs> um, if if you're hitting a distance wedge shot, you want to hit it pretty close to the sweet spot because then you'll get consistent performance and cons you'll be able to judge the distance that you're hitting the shot. If you're hitting it away from the sweet spot, then you, you get a different energy transfer and so therefore your, your carry distance change, distances change. For the finesse wedge zone, it's like find the place where you have least chance of hitting the hosel and least chance of hitting the turf. And that's going towards the toe and low. So that's the, the best um, case scenario for this. But for distance wedges, you want to hit the center of the face. When I say the center of the face, not the geometric center of the face, but sweet spot. And you can be a groove or two lower than the sweet spot below the sweet spot and, and get pretty similar performance. It, it shows you how different those shots are though, doesn't it? Because I think that, as you said, the distance wedges are easier for amateur golfers to do because it's closely linked to their full shots. Unfortunately, we find so many of the amateur golfers, the average golfer coming, bringing their full shot game to the finesse game. Whereas everything we're trying to do in the finesse is about is controlling distance, not creating it. Yeah. So even to your point of open face, ball position, toe strikes all of these things and one thing that i'll always say to a, a golf i say always one of the general things is how can we get a longer swing and make it go less distance you know with this control with this finesse and these soft hands and just totally changing your whole mindset around when you've got a club in your hand other than the putter that it's got to be power it's got to be sequenced well um to create maximum distance so i think if anyone listening to this can just come out of this and go do you know what okay i just need to approach these finesse shots differently and there's also a little bit of the, the distance wedges which i really love um and, and one last little thing on there so yeah. i often say this to amateur players i said tour players control the strike location on purpose unfortunately you don't <laughs> 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 yeah that's perfect <laughs> you're talking to me then or them <laughs> you vary the strike location but not on purpose <laughs> awesome. love it love it love it all right so look guys i think we're all obviously a little bit tight on time and as we said we can talk about this all day and <laughs> we kind of have spoken about it all day so what I want to do, just to give bunkers and maybe even flop shots a little bit more justice, why don't we just do this again? Can we jump on another podcast and do this again soon? Uh, you guys good with that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you're both good with that. I think that would be really good to do. So we can, as you say, we can just give it a little bit more justice. I know it's a little bit fresher from your developments and what you've been, the the information you've been finding on that. So let's do that. Um, Again, look, massive thank you. I mean, you guys have definitely been inspirations to us. Some of the stuff that you have created has definitely helped me with my short game and with my coaching of, of my, my students. And I know Andy the same. I'm yet to see where, the work can... in the short game yet, though, to be honest. I, I'm still waiting. <laughs> for it's got to kick in at some point. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly getting the ball these days. <laughs> no, it, has, it's, it, it has improved. It's improved. But... But for anyone else who's obviously in this situation, maybe that you know, or they just want to improve, what what should they do, guys? How can they find out more about what you guys do and the programs that you've got online now, which are obviously amazing? So, so I'll start it offline, and you can finish it. You can close it out. So we have a, a website called uh, wedgecraft.com. So www.wedgecraft.com, and there's some free content on there, but the primary things are there. The, the digital wedge workshop, the bunker, and the fairway wedge, which are video-based um, instruments that we use to convey information, drills, and training uh, activities for people to improve their wedge plan. Yeah, and so a little more context. The digital wedge workshop was the first of our films. It's about three and a half hours worth of content. The Bunker was done uh, about two years ago. It's a deep dive, about 35 minutes in the bunker. And just this in the last calendar year, we completed the fairway wedge, which is about 85 minutes on that. And we will we will soon film a series that is focused on inside 30 yards when the club face tends to be open. And that will be filmed later this year. But uh, you can find out a, a lot of information on our website and can guide you uh, to better understand maybe some of the stuff we do and uh, some of the stuff that we have filmed for for development. But uh, we appreciate everybody listening today. And thank you for, again, and Andy and Piers so much for having us. One yes. last thing is that if people are local to either Orlando or Birmingham, um, we'd, we'd be only too happy to have uh, in-person lessons with them. And Lane probably uh, does this as well if people want to do something online i know i have a facility to do that as well if people are interested in, in contacting us directly you can get our contact details from the website beautiful and that's that's birmingham alabama by the way not birmingham west Midlands <laughs> in the uk <laughs> you don't want to get you don't want to go there lane trust me the web no, is not, no. Not too <laughs> but I, I think this is great and again look guys anyone listening to this i definitely uh, recommend you listen to these guys watch these guys they do really do know their stuff and i think it, obviously we'll do the we'll do the next podcast but i think a video collaboration in the future would be a great thing to do as well yeah. let's get a sort of live lesson. love to do that i think that'd be really cool okay guys hope you enjoyed the podcast with dr rob and lane what we love about these guys is they they blend the the science and the art of playing together so well ultimately it's about helping golfers get better science is involved but ultimately the art of playing golf is involved as well. And they, they crossed that bridge in a, in a really good way. And we know that they could be a massive help to you as well. So hope you enjoyed that. Hope you got lots of notes that you can take onto the golf course and, and apply straight away. Make sure you check out wedgecraft.com for some more info on, uh, on what they've done. 
And don't forget to check out meandmygolf.com as well and download our app to access our best content. Check out Me and My Golf in the App Store and you can get us wherever you want to and we'll be in your pocket. Thanks for listening, guys. We look forward to seeing you again soon.